You are listening to Worldwide Engineering. Worldwide Engineering. Worldwide Engineering. Worldwide Engineering. How's it going, Worldwide Engineers? Thank you so much for being here today. You know, I recently had my engineering graduation ceremony, which was conducted online this year. And graduating online actually made me realize something very profound. Technology is one of those major things that is enabling us to navigate 2020 in a smooth way. You know, it is technology that is enabling us to stay in touch with each other when we're not able to be together. It is technology that is allowing you to listen to my voice right now and to learn and acquire new information. And it is technology that is that has enabled me to conduct this interview with Alyssa without having to be in the same room as her. So I just wanted to take a second to acknowledge the effort of every single person that has enabled progress to continue happening over the past decades. You know, and this acts as a beautiful reminder that our goal as individuals, the goal behind Worldwide Engineering is to continue inspiring people to push this progress bar forward so that the generation of tomorrow is going to be better than today's generation. With that said, I would love to introduce you to my really, really, really special guest on today's podcast. Alyssa Carson is part of a small group of young professionals working to position themselves to be the first astronauts to go to Mars. Alyssa, who's currently 19, has attended every single NASA space camp and was the youngest person to graduate from the Advanced Space Academy. On today's podcast, you're about to learn what is some of the rigorous training Alyssa has had to undergo to receive her rocketry license, and what is the training she's currently pursuing, as well as the education she's going through to position herself to become a future astronaut and to become the first person to ever walk on the red planet. I'm honestly so excited for you to listen to this interview. You know, Alyssa is really a ball of inspiration, and it was a absolute pleasure having this conversation with her. With that said, Worldwide Engineers, I'm going to be seeing you on the other side. Alisa, honestly, I'm so glad to be doing this right now. I can't tell you how excited I am to have this conversation with you. You know, you're one of the few people in the world that's received your rocket license before your driver's license. You know, I've read a lot about your story. I've watched, you know, every TED Talk you've done. You know, from the age of three, you wanted to become an astronaut since watching, you know, those cartoons going to, to space and, you know, it triggered your imagination. And I absolutely love that story, you know, and I really want to hear your story. What are what is the sequence of events that have led you to going from, you know, a dreaming three year old into you today, who is a potential candidate at NASA for NASA's Mars mission in 2033? So I'd love if you can take us through, you know, the chronological orders of what were some of the major events, the milestones, some of the trainings you've had to undergo up until today. Yeah, totally. I mean, basically, ever since I was little, I've always been fascinated with space and the idea of traveling to space. Um, and then the more I was able to learn about it, the more interested I was. So basically, when I was little, I was really just trying to gather as much information about space as I possibly could. Um, so I mean, when I was very little, that was, you know, going to the library and picking out, you know, a book about space or about planets or 
any little thing that I could get my hands on. And um, so that's kind of where it started. And, you know, my dad saw my interest in space. Um, and then uh, by chance, we ended up seeing a billboard for space camp and um, mm. all that stuff going on. So we had visited the center and then I brought back a brochure for space camp to my dad and I was begging my dad to go. Um, I was still pretty young at the time. This was probably when I was about six or so when I like went and visited. But I mean, even visiting the center, being able to see like full size rockets and it was definitely a wonderful experience. But um, I begged my dad to go to space camp. Then at seven, um, me and my dad did like a family camp. Um, and so we went for like a long weekend, spent the weekend there at space camp. Um, and it was just absolutely the best weekend of my life. I was being able to learn all the information about space I had been wanting to know. I was with other people who were interested in space. I was building my own model rocket. I was acting out the roles of astronauts and um, really just gathering all that information that I've been wanting to learn. So uh, we made space camp kind of a pretty frequent thing. Um, Got to know everyone at Space Camp. Space Camp definitely became like our second family. Um, so definitely a special place there. Um, but yeah, basically I just continued going to uh, Space Camp as well as some other camps around the country that just related to either space or rocketry or robotics or anything related. But really I was just trying to learn more about the different roles in space to really decide what I would actually want to be as um, working in the space industry. There are so many different jobs that you can go into. Um, so basically I just continued through camp and then I was also looking at other things that could benefit a resume for an astronaut so I was looking at getting my scuba certification um, at that time I was looking towards the future of getting my pilot's license and things like that so I had those small goals um, that I wanted to do but basically progressed got those things um, and then as far as like more realistic training um, I joined Project Possum which was and I joined that when I was 15 um, which is basically a citizen science research organization, which basically means it's a whole bunch of everyday people wanting to contribute to science uh, in their free time. So uh, it was really cool. Everyone else was definitely a lot older than I was, so a little intimidating at first, but basically with them, I've been able to do microgravity flights, water survival training, wow. um, different research campaigns. Um, the majority of their research uh, has to do a lot with a certain type of cloud in the upper atmosphere, so I got involved a lot in that um yeah and then continuing to do as much realistic stuff um like i said whether that's decompression working with real spacesuits we work a lot with final frontier spacesuit design um and actually testing suits so that's pretty cool but pretty much nowadays i'm just a college student i'm a sophomore <laughs> at florida tech studying astrobiology so um kind of focus a little bit on school right now to get that under under my <laughs> under my wing i guess yeah, it is required by NASA, actually. And that's actually something I want to dive into a bit later in terms of uh, your education. But what's super fascinating is actually uh, Project Possum that you've been. So that, that was the most hands-on training you've had in terms of training to become an astronaut. So I'd like to know more you know, in depth, what were some of the exercises you've had to undergo? You've, you've mentioned, for example, uh, you've, you've, uh, you went into simulated um, gravity um what like what were what was your experience you know experiencing g-force like, can you take me through some examples 
Yeah, totally. And I mean, it's totally right. I mean, Project Possum was really where I was able to do like realistic stuff. I mean, definitely at Space Camp was, it was absolutely great and all, but um, a lot of it was, you know, as far pretend or as far realistic as they can get. Um, but with Project Possum, we were definitely working with real research and um, everything that we did was for some sort of research benefit. So, um, for example, like you're talking about our microgravity flight, we went up in a Falcon 20 plane and we did parabolas um so we did all the crazy like little hills in the airplane um and normally people do that for fun just to be able to float um however of course everything we do has to be for research so we were we had a whole bunch of experiments going on at the same time while we were floating um so for example we were testing the spacesuit. so my job was actually to um, monitor the test subject that was actually doing all the stuff in the suit so i had to make sure that he still looked healthy i was um watching all the tasks he was doing making sure he completed all of his tasks during each parabola um, just basically monitoring him, especially because if he got sick, then that's kind of the end of the road for us because he's locked into a spacesuit. So we really need um, to not keep pushing him. And so, yeah, so really just monitoring him. He might say he's okay, but that does not always mean they're okay. So really got to watch out for that. But that was super cool to actually be able to feel it. Um, the first one that we did was really an opportunity just to like get a feel of what it was like. So that was a little bit of like a fun one just to like float around and have a good time um you know we had someone doing like backflip spins in the air yeah. so definitely had fun for at least one of uh one of our problems so that was pretty cool um but yeah no there's definitely been all sorts of amazing different um different research that I've been able to be a part of um the water survival was definitely one of um, the most intense as well as um just really fun experiences uh we did a lot of basic water survival but we also connected it to space so I was able to yeah. swim in spacesuits climb into life rafts in spacesuits um we also had a mock-up of a capsule and we were learning how to escape let's say you crash landed back to earth you were in the ocean like they usually do and let's say there was a leak we learned how to escape while wearing a spacesuit, how you would stay safe, stay warm, those sorts of things. So that was really amazing to be able to learn that. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's really just been a combination of learning those things. Basically, with Project Possum, you have like your first introductory week, um, which is great, where you learn a little bit about the program, a bit about the research. You get to do one, um, one flight up in a plane. You do a little bit of decompression training to learn like your symptoms when you start running out of oxygen. Um, we did a little bit of testing with some space suits but after that I've continued on to do other research campaigns with them as well. How has your training been impacted in 2020? Um, it's definitely taken a huge hit. Um, I haven't been able to do just about anything um, in yeah. 2020. You know we were it's definitely been over a year now since I've been able to go somewhere and do an actual training or research campaign or anything like that. So the last one I did was actually last October. Uh, I went up to Canada with the Canadian Space Agency, and I was um, working with Project Possum, testing a different kind of spacesuit um, using a gravity offset system. So we were we were able to manipulate um, with weight the different like sense of gravity that you were feeling. So we could simulate the moon, we could simulate Mars, we could simulate microgravity, mm. and so we were doing different tests. We were testing different geology tools um, and things 
things like that for a moon or Mars mission. Um, so that was actually the last one that I was able to do. Um, I usually, you know, I don't always get to do them all the time. I definitely have to work around school schedule and things like that. So I did that one in October and then I was planning on doing some in 2020, which obviously uh, never happened. Um, and then also I was planning on doing other things as well. You know, over the summer, I wanted to continue flying, um, get my next rating, my instrument rating in terms of being a pilot. Um, so yes, yeah, so there's definitely been a lot of stuff put on hold. So just trying to make the most of the year. Um, but yeah, hopefully get, can get back to doing some stuff sometime soon. That sounds super interesting. Can you tell us what's what's the difference in terms of feeling when you tested Moon's gravity compared to Mars's gravity? You know, because as an engineer, we look at a lot of numbers. It's very quantifiable. You know, G, uh, G force. But for you, you've actually experienced that. How? What? What are? What are some different feelings you got? Yeah, well, definitely the moon has less gravity than Mars. So um, Mars is about one third of the Earth's gravity. Um, so definitely not as strong as what we're used to. So you'll still kind of bounce around a little bit. But there's definitely still a good amount of force there um, to, to kind of keep you keep you on your <laughs> keep you on the ground and keep you um, a bit more normal, I guess, looking when you walk. Uh, the moon is a little bit more adventurous. Um, the, so the moon is like about one sixth of of the Earth's gravity. So, for example, like when you jump, it's going to take a little while to come back down. You kind of have to bounce around a lot. Um, probably, you really have to change your movements a good bit. You know, when astronauts did go to the moon in the Apollo days, they actually had to train for different ways to walk. And that's why it's, you know, looking back at a lot of the footage from the moon, you see them falling over like all the time. They're always tumbling and slipping and falling. Yeah, um, and it's just because it's, you just have to get used to that strange movement of being so bouncy. Um, and being so light and so um, yeah it's definitely something that's totally different very difficult to move around um, but yeah trying to use some of those walks that they teach um, can help a little bit but yeah you definitely can't just walk as you normally would you know something I want to talk about which we were talking a bit uh, before starting this podcast is your education you know your end goal is becoming an astronaut ideally being the first human on Mars and I know NASA is very rigorous in terms of the academic background that astronauts need to have. You know, I believe the first requirement is to have some form of engineering or science background. Uh, so what are some of the courses as a, you know, as a young adult? What are some of the courses you're currently taking that are forming you in a way to become a future astronaut? Yeah, totally. I mean, that is one of the awesome things about becoming an astronaut, because when you really look at it, an astronaut isn't really a job. So you have to have a job before you can apply to be an astronaut. It's really just kind of like a location that you can go and perform uh, all the knowledge that you have um, for whatever job that you're interested in. So really to apply as an astronaut, you just have to study anything in the STEM realm. So, um, I mean, you can be anywhere from a pilot to a scientist. You can study medicine. You can study really any type of science. Um, and eventually uh, possibly be involved uh, in the space program, not only as an astronaut, but there are so many different jobs um, regarding that. But yeah, so basically NASA has, specifically for NASA, of course, there's other selection processes around the world, but um, for NASA, they've made it to where you have to have at least a master's degree um, for whatever discipline that you're studying. Um, so currently, I'm studying astrobiology, which would lead me to be more of a scientist. Um, 
basically when I was younger, I figured out pretty early on that I didn't want to be a pilot or commander or any of those roles um, within space. I was always more interested in possibly being a mission specialist, some sort of research scientist, the one being able to do an EVA, go out and be involved and like do something. That's really what I was curious about. So I'm now studying astrobiology, which is really fascinating um, because your level of research or the things that you can really look into can range anywhere from little bacteria to plants in space to entire planets if you want to. So it really leaves a lot of room for research, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, really astrobiology is just any sort of science in space. Um, basically, as a student, I have to take all the sciences, everything, every type of all the different sciences. So pretty much every semester, it's the same thing. More bio, more chem, more physics, more math. Um, that's just about all I take. Um, there definitely are a few space courses thrown in there. I've taken like an intro to space science and also have a specific astrobiology class. But, um, but yeah, for the most part, it's really just going in depth into all the sciences. Um, so yeah, so I will continue on taking that route as my education background to apply to become an astronaut. Um, yeah, and see where that goes. It really just fell with what I was interested in because you definitely have to look at it. The astronaut selection process is very stiff competition. Um, it's very tough to be selected. So you definitely want to pick something that you'd be more than happy to do here on Earth as well. Yeah. And also what's interesting about you is that from a very young age, you've kind of positioned yourself in a way where you have this end goal and you're kind of positioning yourself versus a lot of people who, you know, they, they, they first this, they make this career decision some, somewhere around, you know, their early adulthood. So for you, you've really like started early. You also mentioned masters. What, what, what were your... What are some ideas you have to go into master's? Yeah, so probably my biggest idea right now for my master's degree is um, International Space University. So they're actually based in Strasbourg, France. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, they actually only have like two different, like two majors. Um, so it wouldn't necessarily be in astrobiology. I think it would just be more of a general space science um, degree that I'd be getting. Um, but yeah, I definitely got interested in uh, ISU um, when I was about 14 or so. I started hearing more about them. Um, but they're definitely a very intense program. I think you like go through your master's in nine months. Um, so they're really, they really push you and work you to um, get through what you whatever it is you're interested in. So um, anyway, I had listened to a few of their classes and got interested. So we'll see, but that's probably um, my highest choice at the moment. Something I want to talk about, which is NASA's 2033 mission to the moon. What is the primary goal of that mission? Yeah, I mean, basically everything that we're doing now in the space program is really looking to um, progress further into um, deeper space exploration. So we've spent a lot of time in low Earth orbit, working on the International Space Station, which has been amazing. We've gained a lot of knowledge from that, but definitely looking now towards deeper space exploration. So the goal right now is to go back to the moon in uh, um, the late 2020. So in the next few years, hopefully sending people back to the moon, um, maybe around like 2026, and then eventually going to Mars in the early 2030s. Um, so both have kind of their own separate goals. 
So right now we're looking at going back to the moon, um, really just to test out the rocket, really just get things um, narrowed out before we send someone six months away. Um, we want to make sure everything's working properly and working well. So um, yeah, so there's going to be missions to the moon to kind of get things tested out. And also we can probably gain a lot more knowledge about the moon nowadays than we had in the 60s. So could definitely be a lot of scientific gain from there as well. But looking at the mission to Mars in the 2030s, the biggest thing that we're looking to achieve is really just a better understanding of Mars. You know, you hear a lot of people talking about terraforming Mars, colonizing Mars, all these big ideas that we have to do with Mars. Um, but we're really not going to be able to do those things if we don't have a full understanding of Mars, what we're working with. Um, and again, if those things are possible, how long they're going to take. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a lot to do on Mars. Uh, like I said, it's going to be a lot of learning, whether that is, you know, testing more of the soil on Mars, testing a lot of the water samples on Mars, um, looking for signs of bacterial life in the water that's there, learning more about the atmosphere. Um, we can also see if there's any resources on Mars that could possibly be useful to problems that we have here. Um, but definitely the the ultimate goal would be that would be another place for us to stay. You know, let's say population continue to increase, we could have another place to stay. And right now, the uh, time frame for traveling from Earth to Mars is about six months. We do know that we have technology with plasma engines that can actually reduce that to six weeks. But definitely, as uh, technology will improve, we will eventually get that shorter. So it could possibly be that a trip to Mars could be nothing and no big deal. Um, and in the future but we definitely have to take those first steps before we can actually get to that point you know that analogy reminds me of you know 200 years ago when you had you know spanish adventurers they would travel by boats you know from europe to to america the americas and then we have airplanes so you know we literally cut the time traveled by 10 just like you said but i actually never heard about the plasma engines what is that exactly yeah, so they actually won't be used on the first missions to Mars. So um, they're a relatively newer technology. They're working on them a lot. Um, kind of where, where near where Space Camp is, but at Marshall Space Flight Center is where they've been doing a lot of research on them. Um, but basically, since they are newer technology, with everything in space, it has to go through so many tests to make sure it's safe for the astronauts, safe for every other part of the rocket and all that. So um, it is a future plan so um, and the mission to Mars in the 2030s will likely still use the engines that take six months, um, which is kind of reusing a lot of even older engines. So th that's the main reason why those engines take so long is because we're actually use reusing a lot of the shuttle engines for um, the new rockets. So a lot of reusing going on, a lot of old technology going on. But yeah, they're still working out all the details of the plasma engines and stuff. But yeah, they have hopes that they can easily get there in six weeks. Do you think that the first mission to Mars is going to be more of a colonization type where they expect the astronaut to stay there a few years or a decade? Or is it more going to be like, you know, a touch and go where you, you go there for, for a few weeks and then come back to Earth with uh, any data you have? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a super interesting question. You know, I really don't think that with Mars, it's going to be possible to do some sort of touch and go, sadly. Um, so the thing about going to Mars is that 
Um, Mars is definitely a lot further than anything else we've done. So we're expecting it to be about a six month journey. And that is when Earth and Mars are the closest. So basically, um, since all the planets don't orbit in perfect circles, they orbit in kind of ellipticals, oval shapes. That means that sometimes Mars is closer and sometimes Mars is a lot further away. So basically we are going to launch and go to Mars um, coming up when it's getting to be its closest point of contact. Um, and that's why I'll take that six months. Um, but after that, Mars will continue to rotate and get further away from Earth. So um, astronauts will likely have to spend probably about a year on Mars, um, maybe a little bit longer. It all kind of depends on the orbits and where everything's at. But um, yeah, it'll likely be probably about a year just waiting for the planets to realign to be able to come back home. So you wouldn't have to spend months and months and months um, traveling in between because definitely with all the effects on your body of space, um, whether that's muscle loss, losing bone density, all those, you have a much greater risk of those being in microgravity than being on Mars that has at least some gravity. So um, yeah, the astronauts are already probably going to have to stay there a good bit of time. So a year is a pretty good uh, chunk of time to start having some sort of colonization. Um, but yeah, probably nothing longer than that. I have two back-to-back -back questions actually about what you just said. So uh, you mentioned you have six months of traveling. That's a lot of time, you know, just hanging around in the same uh, cubic meter of space. What are like what, what was NASA's plan of doing? Do we have some form of hibernation technology? Is that something that's been tested and safe? Uh, like like as someone who's actually, you know, I'm asking as a as a as a viewer, but you're actually someone that could potentially experience this one day. So I'm sure this is something you've thought about in some way. So what can you what are you going to be doing for six months? Yeah, you know, definitely there have been plenty of talks about the whole like hibernation idea. Um, but the interesting thing is that, you know, even though it is six months of what seems like nothing, um, just kind of traveling time, but the area of space that we're going to be traveling is still uncharted territory. It's still a section of space that no one has ever been before. You know, we've only been to the moon. So that distance past that is really a, a whole new um, experience. So there, there, will, there will probably be at least some uh, experience that we will have to do, whether that is photography of the moon or um, testing the radiation levels at, at that section in our solar system. You know, maybe we'll have a better view at seeing other things in space from that viewpoint. Um, so there's definitely some other things that we could be doing, um, other research, um, any sort of preparations for once we get to Mars, um, all those sorts of things definitely come into play. The, the biggest advantage of, for example, like a hibernation or something like that would be not having to worry about food supply or um, that's all the extras that you would need to pack and which which weight comes cost a lot of the time in space so being able to kind of have a way to reduce that weight could be helpful um, but yeah so it's kind of a toss-up um, I think that they're looking more towards like get, gaining the science out of it so it'll probably just be like just like the astronauts on the International Space Station they usually spend about six months up there doing um, experiments and we can also bring our own experiments as well if they're something that we think could be in addition to the mission so um, yeah so there's definitely some stuff that we could do. Would you be comfortable going knowing that there won't be a return mission within a few years? 
I mean, I think that for me personally, I would, I'd be, I would still be for going on a mission to Mars if like the only option was like to never return. But I definitely think that there's too many people now, especially looking at having the return. Um, plus, I think in general, well, NASA has kind of said that they don't really do one-way missions. They're all about bringing the astronauts home safely. Um, it's just kind of a part of their, their program and what they do. But um, I think at the same time, especially for the first mission to space, I think let's say we work towards colonization at some point where you'd stay a bit long, longer term. But I do believe that for the first missions, you know, we're going to want to bring back like a Mars rock. Like I'm sure a museum's going to want something. I'm sure um, stuff is going to happen like that, as well as we're only going to be able to bring so much scientific equipment with us. So we're going to be able to run tests. We're going to be able to do experiments, do research, but there's going to be an extent to what we do so i definitely think bringing stuff back to continue the science to continue the research um is going to be necessary as well to actually bring some of that stuff back so yeah i i think that there would be um that there will be a return but i would go if there wasn't any other options but i just think that there's too many other people in the <laughs> in the field to be um to not have a return that's so exciting you you're about to become the real life mad <laughs> <laughs> um you know, you are the literal incarnation of passion. You know, from a really young age, you've found something that really passions you. And you've really positioned yourself on a journey where you're going to be able to turn that passion into a living. You know, and you are in a position where a lot of people would dream to be. You know, a lot of people have a dream to become an astronaut, to become... Uh, an actor, an actress, an engineer, what, a lot of people have different passions, you know, and one question I personally have for you is how have you been able throughout the years to stick with your passion and, you know, really stay focused on that? Because, you know, as individuals, we change as we grow older, we change, you know, for, for my case, for example, I went into engineering four years ago because I had a really I had a passion for renewable energy. You know, my goal, my passion was to create the next generation of green buildings. You know, four years down the road, I'm still passionate about that topic. But look at me, I'm, I'm here conducting podcasts. You know, so we change as individuals. So I was wondering, what would you recommend for people that have this passion? What is your tip to sticking to it and really not lose faith? Yeah, totally. You know, I think that in general, you know, how you're saying most people kind of don't really have it figured out exactly what they want to do or what their passion may be. And I think a lot of that um, stems from, you know, we aren't really pushed as people um, or as kids to think about what we want to do, um, because ultimately you don't have to make that decision until you're picking a major in college. But before that, there's nothing you know, there's nothing really pushing you to go out and look for different jobs that you might be interested in. Or, um, I mean, yeah, schools have like career fairs and things like that to encourage it, but there's nothing really pushing you to make a decision or to decide or to start working towards um, any of those goals. And so um, I think that's kind of where it kind of starts at as to where we're really waiting a little bit longer to start um, seeing how you can get involved in what you want to do, um, whereas you can actually start getting invo involved in a lot of really interesting things, um, even at a young age. And I think along with that is it's super important to keep like a balance 
life as well. So of course your passion is going to be something you want to work on, but it's definitely not something that you want to work on absolutely all the time. Um, you know, me growing up, obviously I was interested in space, but I wasn't always talking about space or always doing something towards space. Um, living that normal life as well was super important, especially because let's say I had the opportunity to go somewhere and do something towards, towards space. I was excited and I was ready to do it because I don't get to do it all the time. I had that opportunity to go and work towards it. And so, um, I think kind of keeping your passion in a special place is pretty important. You know, it's not just something that is an everyday thing. You know, it's something that you should be excited to go do. And um, that's definitely how space was for me, especially, you know, with school and all the other components of life. There's always other stuff kind of trying to get in the way. So really take advantage of the time that you have to actually work towards whatever um, your goals are. But, um, you know, I definitely, when I was younger, the idea of being an astronaut was absolutely the most crazy thing I could have picked. Um, but yeah, definitely sticking more with it makes it become more and more of a reality. So it's definitely realizing even if it's a long-term goal, I mean, for example, like the mission to Mars, even now it's still, you know, 10 years at least away. And so having those long-term goals, it's really important to break it down, you know, have those smaller goals. I mean, for example, right now I'm really focused on just getting through college, getting through this semester, getting through this class. And so having those small goals along the way can really build you towards your ultimate goal but um yeah you definitely have to realize that each step is a piece towards that larger goal did you ever get to a breaking point where you just wanted to give up you know you especially you you know you've through the years you've amassed enough i'm gonna say media attention you know you've become a personality people love you for who you are you know you can literally be whoever you want you can become an actress you can become a youtuber you can be a tiktoker you can be anything you want keeping consistency in, in your message did it ever come through your mind that you know what actually it's cool to be an astronaut but I have this other thing yeah you know I mean when even when I was a little kid you know I still kind of bounced around between like different careers um but the way I always thought about it was that I'd be an astronaut go to space come back and then be a doctor or whatever it was at the time be a teacher be the president whatever I had in my head that week um but for some reason being an astronaut was always pretty much first on my list um but kind of besides that I mean continuing to grow up um I mean speaking has definitely become a huge part of my life as well um being able to speak and inspire and teach kids about space. Um, so definitely becoming a science communicator and uh, a space communicator has definitely become a part of my life. But it definitely hasn't, I guess, gotten to the point where I would rather do that by any means. Um, I definitely think that to continue to get my point across as a science communicator, I have to achieve what I've been pushing and what I've been um, teaching. And so I definitely don't think that I'm necessarily at a point to switch to something else. Um, but at the same time, um, I mean, definitely looking, even if I didn't have this dream at a young age, science and math has always been what I'm good at and what I'm more interested in. So I think at the end of the day, I would have always ended up in some sort of STEM field. Um, and I mean, even going through college, you know, you always have doubts about your major and what you're doing and if it's too tough for you or if you can make it through it. So yeah, even in those moments, I mean, I don't even looking at college, I don't even know what I would switch to. I mean, I think I was thinking about that actually freshman year. I was like, like, is astrobiology too hard? I was like, I think the only other thing I'd be interested in doing is like maybe biology. Like there's not really that much of a mm -hmm. switch. So um, yeah, I definitely still have my full interest 
and um, and continue to pursue this. And I mean, of course, the future always changes with whatever, but um, I at least feel pretty confident in like my major and what I look to do as um, a career. I love that. Listen, Alyssa, to close things off, I have a few questions that were asked from the worldwide engineering community. I made a poll yesterday, or actually uh, two days ago, and people really got to ask their questions to you. So how does it sound uh, if we go through some of the questions and maybe we can answer them rapid fire? How does sure, that sound? Yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> All right, so that's a question by I am Ax830 and Mo. His question is, Has have you ever tried space food yet? Um, I mean, I guess kind of. I mean, I've tried like all the like merchandise, like whatever that they sell in the gift shops, like space ice cream. I also used to eat all the time as a kid. It was almost like a, they called it like a space food stick. It was like a stick of like peanut butter and who knows what else. But I don't know. I ate that as well. Um, I always thought those were good. Um, but I mean, really space food nowadays is really just turned into everyday food. You know, they have anywhere from shrimp cocktail to mac and cheese to, you know, they have, you know, all sorts of stuff up there now. So space food really now is almost the same as what we have here. Astronauts can really ask for anything and they can try to work it out. I mean, obviously some foods are off limits in space, but for the most part, they can kind of figure some stuff out. Cool. Question by Angela. Is there any chance for a person who is almost 30 to become an astronaut? Yeah, um, totally. You know, I definitely think that if, if you have some of or like the credentials to apply to the astronaut selection program, which really is just a master, some work experience, I would assume by 30, you have some sort of nice work experience with whatever you're focused on. Um, and then really past that is just passing the physical. So the typical age of, ash, of an astronaut is really mid to late 30s anyway. Um, so it's definitely um, right there in the range. You know, actually, our youngest astronaut um, in the U.S. is 35, which is absolutely crazy to think about. Um, but yeah, so astronauts are actually more towards the late 30s age range. Um, actually, if you look at the most recent SpaceX launch, um, they just sent uh, astronauts up to the International Space Station. The youngest astronaut on that mission was 44. So definitely, if you're 30, you're you're well within range. <laughs> actually, I'm curious, is there a cap? Like, what's the oldest astronaut they've sent? Um, I'm pretty sure the old, I'm trying, I, I don't know the exact number. I know he was in his 70s. I think it was like 72, wow. 73, somewhere around that. It was um, Gus Grissom, I'm pretty sure. Um, I think, I think that's right. Maybe it was someone else. Okay, I might begin it that confused. But <laughs> okay. I know he was in his 70s. Um, but basically, he was an astronaut several times. He wanted to push himself, send him to space in his 70s. He wanted to be crazy like that. A lot of the early astronauts were. Um, but yeah, they don't they don't typically send 70-year-olds anymore. Um, there's not necessarily a cap. Um, there's not like a defined age that they cut people off at. Um, it's really, it's really all about health, depending on where you are in a health stance. Um, you're constantly taking physicals if you're an astronaut and typically most astronauts, once they get, um, especially late fifties, most of them tend to retire anyway, just, um, for themselves and wanting to have a more relaxed lifestyle from them, from then on. Cool. So question by Bob the Builder, what does your typical day look like? How many hours of the day do you work, play? 
Yeah, I mean, there's definitely no, like, defined everyday kind of schedule or anything. Every day is pretty different, um, especially, you know, when I'm in school. It's really just the normal day of any other college student going to classes, doing homework, um, having maybe some free time to watch a Netflix episode. Um, but, yeah, nothing too crazy. Usually when I'm doing any sort of training or research, um, sometimes those have classes that come along with them. So I'll just add that class to my normal workload in terms of classes. Um, but for any sort of, like, physical training, I usually go to wherever it may be. Um, I'm usually there for about a week, do that all day, every day for a week, and then kind of go back to my normal life. Um, and then, yeah, but, I mean, for the most part, it's really just trying to find a balance. Um, I mean, definitely still hanging out with friends and just being in normal kid as well but um but yeah for the most part I would say it's probably just the normal load of a uh, of a normal college student but then you also have to add on like um whether it's interviews or uh speech or any other little things like that um I also have an internship now which is also another level to play in so that is now a good 10 hours a week um at least um so yeah just trying to balance it all, but there's definitely no everyday schedule. Every day is so different. Uh, another question by Anmo. What's the highest G-force you've experienced? Um, I think, let's see, I think the highest Gs that I've been like put on is probably 3.4, if I'm not mistaken, um, which isn't too bad. 3.4 is not bad at all. Most astronauts go through at least eight, Um, so 3.4 is definitely not, not bad at all. Um, but yeah, that's probably the most I've done. How did it feel like a, like a roller coaster, I guess? Yeah, you just feel really heavy. Um, having additional G's put on you is basically just like however many of yourself sitting on top of you. So, I mean, 3.4 would be like, um, almost three and a half of me sitting on top of me. Um, so it's really just multiplying your weight. Um, so you definitely just feel like a brick. Um, you just feel like you can't move. Moving your arm is difficult you can, to just raise it. Um, but yeah, it's definitely cool to be able to feel that. But I mean, when you take off in a rocket, you're definitely going to feel that pressure pushing back on you. So Alyssa, last question. This one's from me. If you get a call tonight from NASA telling you that you have Uh, you're leaving tomorrow for Mars. What will be your last meal on Earth? Um. Oh, that's so <laughs> tough. Um. I don't know. I have some. I maybe like either. It would probably either be some like Louisiana dish. So like, I mean, being from Louisiana, I love like gumbo, jambalaya, um, crawfish, those sorts of things. It would probably either be that or sushi. Because I'm a big sushi Ooh. person. I love sushi. <laughs> so it would probably be one of those two. I don't know if sushi would be the best to put in my stomach like before flying on a rocket, but it would probably be in, in some of my top meals. Alyssa, where can people find more about you? Yeah, all of my stuff, whether it's social media, website, um, again, almost any sort of social media is all under NASA Blueberry, um, website nasablueberry.com. So yeah, check me out. <laughs> Alyssa, thank you so much. It was so amazing. Hey, Worldwide Engineers. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast interview. If you've been enjoying the Worldwide Engineering podcast so far, please, please, please share it with a friend. Because remember, having someone to discuss the content of our episodes with is going to increase the retention rate of the information you are getting from those interviews. 
And growing this community is also going to enable us to bring you bigger and better speakers. With that said, I am going to be seeing you on the next episode. I can't wait. <laughs>